Coming up this hour, how has COVID-19 changed faith around the world? And then a confessions of a pastor who says, I hate fasting. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Uh, Ian, I was telling you off air, but I'll, I'll let everybody know that uh, uh, you, one of our jokes has been since COVID started, we both do these, uh, shows from different places, from our homes or other places. And you're always talking about how you're in the windowless basement and like how you don't know if it's night out or day. Today, I'm doing the show like you in a windowless room. I don't know if it's raining, snowing, sunny. I don't know what time of day it is. This is, it is awkward. I, uh, I now can understand how it's been for you. Well, I, I was going to ask, are you, are you in a cave somewhere? The, there's an echo. <laughs> That is so yes. concerning. I was like, is Brian, are you a prisoner? Like, bark twice if you're in Milwaukee. I, like, just I, let me let me know you're okay. <laughs> I'm not. The, the people around me are not letting me do that right now. Man. No, I'm at a room. I'm in the conference room of our church right now and no no windows or anything. So, uh here we go. I'm, I'm going to get the day wrong, the time wrong. You know, it could be it could be anything right now. But that's what not having uh, windows does to you. You, you lose does. all it sense does. of space and time. It does. But the good news is you're not going to hear my dog today and I'm not going to have to smell microwave popcorn. So I'm seeing the positive side of things. I think Pippa will find a way. Let's uh, (laughs) let's get (laughs) through the show first. Yeah. Pippa's outside the conference room door here at the church. <laughs> I have no idea how she got here, but she's just staring me down. So, <laughs> well, anyway, we are glad that you are joining us. Ian, we often talk about when we do current events, uh, the one phrase that we often use is, I'm out over my skis on this one, or I'm not a blank and, and don't understand whether it be COVID or this or that. So I'm going to set you up here for a, I'm not an economist, but have you been following this GameStop story at all? It's all I'm seeing on Twitter on the Today Show this morning. Uh, a, have you been following it? And B, do you understand what's going on at all? Oh, I can't GameStop reading about it, Brian. It is. <laughs> Oh, you're in rare form today. <laughs> well, I don't know that it's rare. I don't know that it's good either. But uh, yeah, I was talking with some buddies last night about it, actually, who are a trillion times more informed. And I had them explain it to me and I still don't understand. So it's, <laughs> it's like not- it's like having a magician like show you a magic trick and then explain the trick. And you're like, OK, yes. got the coin in this hand and then you got it in this hand. And now it's gone. And I'm like, I still don't understand. I don't know what's happening. So I am following it. I uh, There's a couple of like morning reads that I, I follow, like the, like the Morning Brew and uh, what's the other one? Dispatch. There's a few that are like helpful at kind of unpacking it, but it's a pretty wild story amidst everything else that's going on. It is. It's kind of like, <clears throat> well, it went from kind of like a funny story from what I can tell, uh, kind of uh, these, you know, people on Robin Hood and other things deciding we're going to kind of stick it to the short traders and all this stuff. I'm learning all this stuff about the stock market because like you, us pastors, <laughs> we're usually uh, this is not usually in it's our wheelhouse. People who trade shorts, though, right? Like they're exactly, they're exactly. anti long yep. pants and they're yep. just swapping like cargo shorts back and forth. That much yep. I know for sure. Yep. And like me, they tend to not be very tall and it's all that kind of stuff. So, but, but now people are just angry because things like Robin Hood and stuff have stopped your ability to trade certain things. And now everyone, all I'm reading on Twitter is like, this is how the stock market is kind of rigged against, you know, kind of common people and this and that. It feels like I'm watching Les Mis play out right all over my Twitter screen right now. Uh, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty cold for shorts too. That's probably why they're so angry. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, a lot of smart people out there listening to the radio right now going, you guys are just morons on this. And we, we own it. We own it. But it is kind of the story of the day. If you haven't seen it, uh, it led the Today Show that I was watching this morning. And uh, we'll see how it all plays out. But a little more in our wheelhouse where I wanted to go to kick off the show. We talked a lot about COVID and people know that you and I are pastors and interested in, in what is COVID doing we obviously know what it's doing health-wise and to schools and businesses, but what's it literally doing to people's faith? Is is COVID-19, is the pandemic, now that's 10, 11 months old, uh, is it strengthening belief in God? Is it uh, rocking it? And, and the Pew Research came out, and this was at Christianity Today, <clears throat> came out with a study how COVID-19 has changed faith in 14 countries. And it basically says this, that in 11 of 14 countries surveyed, the share who say their religious faith has strengthened is higher than the share who say it is weakened. But generally, People in developed countries don't see much change in their own religious faith as a result of the pandemic. And as they drill down, it actually uh, says, and take the surveys for what they will, that uh, some places like Spain, United States, Italy has seen a strengthen of, of faith, while South Korea and was kind of the main one that has saw a weakening of faith. Wondering what you do with these numbers. A, do you believe them? Do you think that, yeah, you know what? Faith is getting stronger around the world through the pandemic. And then I want to drill down a little bit kind of in individuals out there who are like, nope, my faith is rocked by this. But do you believe these numbers kind of on a, on a, on a grand scale that we're reading here from Pew Research? I, I, first, I'm kind of still hung up that you, you mentioned that, uh, coronavirus is 11 months old like it's a like it's a baby like we're celebrating <laughs> the pandemic is has been going on for 11 months we'll go through. yes we are not throwing a party for it in yeah, march that is for sure yeah, we're not celebrating yeah the one year birthday uh That's right. I, I do i will say with a caveat i i buy the numbers i do think like a word like faith is one that requires a lot of clarification and divining mm -hmm. because it can mean so many different things like i think that there is i mean just anecdotally you know within conversations in our own church like there certainly is a heartache over not being able to gather mm -hmm. a a missing of normality and within that normality is you know weekly rhythms of being in person and also i would say uh increased need for like real-time dependence i think a lot of people have mentioned like a like a deepening prayer life mm. the reason i i give all that context is because i want to be really careful to not say yeah yeah this is this is the best thing to happen to faith like we don't we don't we don't ever <laughs> yes. need to gather in person ever again because faith is stronger like i could see people making that correlation like well faith is so much stronger maybe we should never go back to gathering in person i'm like no 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 <laughs> right i, I right, don't right. agree with that and i think that there is we were talking about this last night too with some with some buddies about a different topic entirely but there is something, I mean, especially in the, in the Old Testament, the arc of the story of Israel tends to be Israel's most in trouble when they're like the most secure and powerful and sure of themselves. And God seems to show up in the most profound ways when they're like displaced, upside down, running from attack. You know, I mean, there's like, which is, uh, it shouldn't surprise us that much because you and I have done a lot of stories on the show about the global church and things we're seeing in Iran and right. China and Egypt and Uganda, where like by our metrics, we're like, gosh, that almost seems surprising that faith is just exploding in these regions. So yeah, I, I think I buy the numbers and I think it's, I think it's a really interesting study. It's worth reading the whole thing. 
It is. And it's up at our Facebook page and Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Unfair question for you with just a minute left here. But what about the person out there who's listening going, yeah, I get it kind of globally. But right now, my faith is rocked by the pandemic. I am struggling. Uh, could you give a word of hope maybe to that person as we kick this show off today? Yeah, I would say, first off, it's perfectly OK to have your faith rocked. I think that's, you know, Keller talks a lot about um, faith and doubt like needing to work in conjunction together and how doubt can often serve like as, as antibodies, like, you know, Beekner calls doubt the ants in the pants of faith. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, I mean, it's a silly example, but I think in a lot of ways, if we actually don't run from it and, and lean into right, what, am, what is rocked about my faith or what am I really doubting right now? What's really a struggle? I think of the more that we lean into that. We talked about this on the show a bit yesterday. That can lead us to, to lament, I think. It can lead us mm -hmm. to a deeper examination. I think those things are those are worth committing the time to. And it's often in seasons like the one that we're in that we're like most inclined to do that. And it yeah, it's tough. Like it, I hear you. And I've been in those seasons, too. So don't mm -hmm. don't think I'm like subscribing some like simple solution to like your faith being rocked but there there really is hope on the other side if we're willing to yeah. like plant our heels in and do the work i think it's i think that's a really important thing to do that's a good word man as we kick off the show today you can find that article up at our facebook page twitter and instagram at common good talk coming up next jd greer uh, writes this confessions of a pastor i hate fasting i think many of us feel the same way we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of fasting coming up next year on the common good aim 1160 hope for your life Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. If you missed the first segment, what you missed is Ian and I confessing. Confessing we don't understand the stock market. So we tried to have a discussion around what's happening with GameStop and all this controversy around Robinhood and the, and the stock market. And we, you and I both went, eh. Not really sure what we're talking about, but that's what makes it fun to do a radio show. So, uh, is if that anybody, what, is that what makes it fun? I'm it is. People listening, like, over. I, I disagree entirely. That is getting out over our skis, going. Eh, Should have stuck to my lane on that one. Uh, yeah, I feel that way. Minimum two times a show. That's right. So we got it out of the way right off the bat. Uh, but one of the ones that we'll be able to speak probably more to is this article written by J.D. Greer at churchleaders.com. J.D. Greer, uh, a president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I think he's still the president uh, of that. Uh, he is also the uh, the pastor of Summit Church in North Carolina. That is just a prolific uh, church planting church. Uh, and J.D. Greer is inc increasingly a well-known voice here in the evangelical world. So I love this article that he wrote that I I'd love for you to get us into and then have a discussion about it. Because to have somebody who writes books and he's kind of this, you know, this this well-known guy write this confessions of a pastor. I hate fasting. And I was like, amen to that. <laughs> and so uh, let's hear what J.D. Greer had to say. And then, then you and I are going to have a discussion about fasting. Why don't you get us into this? I just I just love before we get into it, you're like, OK, we are out of our skis in the first segment. But here's a segment we're totally going to nail. He's the, he's the president of the SBC, though, right? Isn't he? Isn't yes. he, is he not? Yes. Is he not? Is he, <laughs> he, he, I, I'm going to nail him over the confidence. Is he? I'm 99 percent sure that I'm 99 percent sure. I know that he was. I'm 99 percent sure he still is. And there is soon to be an election to replace him. But, you know. Always a little doubt. I'm just trying to imagine if like a surgeon was trying to like really instill confidence. Like I, 
I'm going to nail this surgery. This one's the scalpel, though, right? Isn't it? Is this a scalpel? <laughs> much, I'm 99% sure. It's like surgery stories. Sorry, going to get us all off track when you read those stories where they're like, I wrote on marker on their leg this one. So I made sure to do surgery on the right leg. And you're like, oh, my well, goodness. And I was cracking jokes before my surgery last week. And I, I don't know if I've shared exactly what it was, but I had like a, a pretty uh, enormous cyst behind my knee. Oh, okay. And so like four or five people came through to like market. And I was like, I think it's going to be a little obvious. Like, I'm pretty I'm confident if you look behind both of my knees, let me put it this way. If it's not clear which one needs the work, uh, I'd like to go to a different hospital, please. Like, that's- what if what if they grabbed a marker and on your knee just written knee? Yeah, <laughs> like, hey, we just want to make sure knee, we know what we're right? talking about here. They're just playing like a game of operation, but with human, human bodies. <laughs> All right. We got to get into this. So confessions of a pastor. I hate fasting. I will say at the onset, I don't I don't hate fasting just per- personally. I don't know that I would say that I'd love it, but uh, uh-huh. either way. Well, yeah, this will be fun. So he says that is true. At least it used to be. It's still a little true, but it's uh, it's changing in me. My it's what? But it's changing in me mainly because I'm just beginning to learn the reasons why the Bible tells us to fast. Many Christians in honest moments agree with me. Fasting days put you in a bad mood. You rarely come out feeling more spiritual. You come out feeling like you could eat a raw goat. That's <laughs> What that's a picture that wow. is. <laughs> yeah. The reason for that is that though many Christians know they ought to fast, but they don't know why they fast. They know it's connected to prayer, but they don't know what the connection is. And, and unfortunately, end up fasting in a way that is completely out of step with the gospel. Quick caveat to uh, Scott McKnight has done a, a, a series of writings on fasting that I, I found mm. really helpful in this way. Because often we fast because we assume that punishing ourselves somehow makes us and our prayers more acceptable to God. Fasting shows how badly we want and deserve what we're asking for. God is moved, we believe, by our culinary flagellation and grudgingly grants us what we ask for since we've suffered so much in our fast. Does any of that describe maybe a definition of fasting that you've held in the past, Brian? It does. It yeah. does. And uh, fasting, I should say, I totally do not enjoy it. And it has been played an important part in my life at certain times. Uh, but I have taken that, okay, I'm going to show God how much I'm going to pray today and how how painful this is going to be. I'm going to punish myself. Uh, so yeah, I've certainly taken that tack before. Okay. So so I'm curious what what changed for you. Like he's going to get into a little bit of how that journey has shifted his perspective toward fasting. But how did, how did you make that journey? It has been, uh, I did do some reading and I'm, I'm not going to remember the name of the book off the top of my head, but, but I remember I did some reading at one point, uh, in about fasting a couple years ago, but I also just think it's been experiential for me. It's okay. I'm going to believe what the Bible says and what I've read about fasting. I'm going to do it and, and commit to prayer. And I've seen God work in those times. Like mm-hmm. I've, and I've, I've seen it. So a, a little bit of it is like, yeah, I believe it, but until I actually kind of experienced it, I'm not sure I truly believed it or understood it. And so I would say I never have enjoyed it. I always am hungry and just kind of get a little ornery and this and that. Uh, but the times that I have fasted either myself or, or in my, with my wife or with like, you know, the elders of our church, I have seen fruit from it. And so therefore I'm like, okay, no, this is a good spiritual discipline in my life. I like that you're like, ah, whenever I fast, I'm like hungry. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think hungry. Is, I think that's part of the part of the deal, actually. Yeah, I, yeah. I would I, I kind of want to ask you what might be this will be softball controversial. So not like real hard hitting. But how do you feel about the um, 
Like I'm not fasting from food, but I'm going to fast from social media. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. About I that. think it's a good discipline, right? To take sure. time away from social media or this, but, but I think there's something uniquely uh, important about fasting from food. A, that's what the Bible talks about, but B, uh, it, it is has to do with our sustenance, right? Like I right. need food to survive. I think it's a different thing. So I'm all for uh, taking breaks from social media or yeah. from television or other sorts of media. But uh, that was a softball. How would you answer that softball? <laughs> I mean, probably similarly when people are like, I'm fasting from social media. I'm like, no, nah, that's just called restraint. Like that's, that's <laughs> yes, yes, that's yes, different. Yes. And like you said, that's good. And I think that that can be honestly, I'll even go so far as say, I think it can be good for our souls. I don't think it's just, Oh, you should have less screen time than you currently do. Like I do really think, having parameters and rhythms and seasons where you step away entirely is smart. I, I think you're spot on though. And I think Greer would agree something different happens when you're dealing with like what your body physically needs to survive. Even if it's not, you know, like a total fast, we're actually in a season of fasting as a church right now. And some people it's, it's they're skipping one meal or they're doing, mm-hmm. some kind of, you know, like a Daniel fast, they're doing some kind of, you know, alternate version of it. I'm, I'm for all of that. Like, you know, figure out what you're capable of, of doing and what works for you. I think that's important, but I do think, Mm -hmm. and maybe that makes me old school. I know I used that word yesterday too. I do think it, the component of actual physical food is important. I do too. And like I said, it doesn't always have to be this 24 hours. I think the most consistent time of fasting and prayer, and those are linked together. The most uh, consistent time I could think of a couple years ago is there was a specific day of the week that I fasted from lunch. Uh, so I would yeah. eat breakfast in the morning and eat dinner at night with my family, but it was a hard to get through the day, but, but it yeah. was, it was a discipline and, and that's kind of the way that I did it. Yeah, I think that's smart. Do you uh, do you have a takeaway from this Greer article? It's actually pretty good. He he comes at it. I mean, he's he's you know quoting the Puritans in here. I love this this quote: "One pure motive in prayer is worth more than many words." I I think that's super convicting. I think that's great. What what is sort of the uh, the nugget of truth in this article? Oh, I think when I read things like this, uh, other than it going me, I don't leave this convinced like, oh, yeah, fasting's actually a good thing. I know fasting's a good thing, yet it's something that I tend to avoid or get out of practice from. And so articles like this that remind you of the power of it, that he talks about it giving greater sensitivity to the voice of the spirit uh, and that it also gives God a chance to purify our hearts. But just that I now I look back in my life and go, yeah, you know what? There were seasons where I was regularly fasting and yeah. praying and God worked through those. So I use these articles much more reminder. Like I don't need convincing that it's good. Right. I do need I do need a nudge to to uh, to in, take that spiritual discipline. And go, yeah, that's going to be a part of my life. So would love to know what you think about fasting. Is this a regular part of your life? Is this something that you uh even enjoy. You might be listening to us go, no, that's that's a great part of my life. I'd love to right. hear from you at our Facebook page, Twitter, or Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to dive into the Twitter sphere. I've got two tweets I'd like to discuss next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, Ian, something I like to do to you when when I'm kind of putting the show together is to ask you about one of your own tweets. And people need to out there need to know you hate when I do this, and it makes me want to do it more. <laughs> I, I have I have picked up on that, actually. The more that I squirm, 
the more often this happens. <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to go, you know what? I didn't see anything I wanted to talk in the news. We're going to do eight Ian Simpkins Ugh. tweets just across the day. <laughs> I'll be calling in sick that day. Uh, so uh, I did grab one of your tweets, but then also one from friend of the show, Scott Sauls, if we have time that I, that I wanted to talk about, too. Honestly, one of the reasons I like doing this is I do feel like tweets, uh, especially from people that that either we respect or uh, or one of us or whatever else gives <laughs> us a great kind of um, uh, it, because they're so succinct. Uh, it gives us a good launching point into things that that I think are important for people to hear. So I'm thanks. only going to read one of your tweets today. I, I Last time, th- thanks for creating two categories: either people we respect, or it's one <laughs> or of us. us. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I hear you. So last time I did this to you, I think I read three of your tweets in succession. Oh, I'm yeah. only going to make you explain one of your tweets wow, today. So thanks. that's what we're going to do. So Here funny. is what you wrote, I believe, yesterday. Okay. Uh, yesterday morning, it says this. Mercy gave the prodigal son forgiveness. Grace gave him a feast. When I first read that, I was like, oh, a lot to think about there. Uh, I love the picture. So mercy gave the prodigal son forgiveness. Grace gave him a feast. I would love to hear the thought process behind that tweet. Yeah, my guess is um, even if you're not a church person, you've probably heard this story in some way, shape or form. Luke 15, Mm -hmm. if you've not read it, it's it's such a profound story. I I love I feel like I read new things in that story every time. And I forget I forget what the conversation was. I had a a friend and and a professor at Judson who recently said something to me, he said, any picture of, of Jesus, no, any picture of the father that doesn't look like the father and the prodigal son is woefully inadequate. And I was like, oh, hmm. man, that's such a good, I think that's such a good word. Uh, but what I was really struck by, I don't know, I don't know if scripture is like this for you, like, because you, I mean, you're preparing sermons every week. So you, by nature of your job, are like, you're, you're digging in, you're, you're parsing words, you're, you're spent, and you've been a pastor. How long have you been a pastor? 20 years? More years. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's, you've spent a lot of time. Do you ever come across passages that you, you know, you've read 40 times and yeah. for whatever reason, it just like hits you in a different way. And you're like, what, how did I miss that? How have I never, I don't know. It just, that, that is always mm-hmm. like so humbling. And I, yeah, it just, there was something in this story that I, it just struck me in a, in a new way. And the, the son, his posture when he comes back is, I mean, he's shooting just as low as possible. Like all he all he's asking for is like, just let me just let me serve on the team. Like, let me have the lowest rung in the organization. I'm like out of options. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't even I mean, that's kind of what makes his posture even more um, humbling. Right. Because it wasn't like eh, I've had enough fun. I guess I should go back. He's like, no, I've literally mm-hmm. exhausted all my options like head hung low. You know what I mean? Like he, I don't know. I mean, even think about what he says to him, father, I've I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to -hmm. be called your son. That's what he says directly after when it literally says, while he was a long way off, his father saw him was filled with compassion for him and ran after him, which, you know, men in this culture did not do. They did not run. And he threw his arms around him and kissed him. Like what a, just, uh, just an extravagant picture. So, the father could have just said, okay, you're forgiven, and here is your apron, here is mm-hmm. your towel, uh, get to work. You have a lot of repaying to do. You know what I mean? Like he, It would have been perfectly within the father's right to do that, to assume that That's posture, right. 100%. But instead, 
for him to like call the servants and put a, a robe and a ring and sandals and kill the fattened calf. And they threw this huge part. Like to me, I think we so often we get the mercy component of God that like, mm-hmm. well, because of Jesus and the cross and resurrection, I like get to, I get to squeak into heaven. I get to go to the good place instead of the bad place. And I'm grateful for that. I'm like, no, 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 no. If we stop there, we, we miss the extravagant grace of the father who like, mm-hmm lavishes abundantly on us love and mercy and purpose and passion and relationships and beauty. You know what I mean? Like I just feel yeah. like we so often our culture stops short of like, ah, that was, that was good of the father to forgive the son and I'm the son in the picture. So therefore God is a, he's a merciful judge who chooses to not lock me up when he could. I'm like, ah, oh, that's yeah. such, that's all. That's so that's half the picture. And I think if we live our lives with that posture towards God, it's going to affect the way that we, the way that we understand him. And I will say this. And I thought my buddy Samuel said something really brilliant. Yeah. Uh, he responded to the tweet and said, but is the feast complete? His father yet remains outside the party with the brother to whom he has not reconciled. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Ooh, that's a whole other, you know, the story kind of ends in a very weird way, you know, with the brother who's unhappy, like he doesn't, he's not in the house celebrating. And I saw somebody else tweet something out. I think it might've been yesterday, actually. Maybe this is what sparked it. They said, the older brother shows us that you can be in the house, but still far from the heart of the father Mm -hmm. and -hmm. speaking to the older brother, like he's been there the whole time, but he's like miserable because his father has been so merciful and gracious to his brother. So yeah, I just love this story. I just feel like there's so many, there's so many levels to it. It's absolutely true. And I think that's why I really resonated with what you said in the tweet was uh, oftentimes when I read that story, I will stop at the uh, him being welcomed back. Like that's the pinnacle of it. But then when you go, no, 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 there's a feast that's coming is just, oh, my gosh, it it adds that next level to the extravagant grace uh, that we have shown. Okay, real fast. Wanted to read this one. Scott Sauls. He loves to stir the pot. He's a friend of the show. He loves to stir the sp- stir the pot on uh, Twitter, a- and he did so with hashtag dismissible faith. I was like, okay, oh here, we go. here we go. <laughs> he says when other people's quote unacceptable sins, sexuality, bad speech, wrong politics, is a deeper cause of grief for you than your own quote acceptable sins judgmentalism, gossip, political idolatry, and spin. He basically says that's a definition of dismissible faith. That's a bit of a mic drop from Scott Sauls, albeit asking you to crawl into his brain and speak for him. What do you think he's trying to say there with that hashtag dismissible faith and then that as the description? Well, the first tweet or the first response that I see, at least, is uh, someone's referencing Jerry Bridges' respectable Mm -hmm. sins, confronting the sins we tolerate. I don't know if you've ever read that before. I have not. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, it's the punch of that tweet over and over and over and over again. Like it is, it is certainly convicting. I think that there, it, it to a much lesser degree. Like, don't you find that um, if you're late somewhere, your speeding is totally justified, right? And you're like mm-hmm. mad at everyone else who's driving slow, and they're an idiot. But when you're not late somewhere, and someone goes flying past you, isn't that person in your mind always a moron? Yes. You're like, how, yes. How dare they? You're like, you were speeding 30 minutes ago. <laughs> like, I think it, I think there is a, a real human nature thing that he's getting at there that it it is so much easier to point out the flaws and errors in someone else. And and at times in the right context, that does need to happen. I, this is not a, hey, just mind your own business and we'll, right. we'll all get along. Like, no, no, no. The Christian community is about 
accountability and sometimes correction. But I, I do think, though, that especially like with scripture, I think the Bible is first a mirror, not binoculars. At first, yeah. it should like cause us to look inwardly and say, you know, with the psalmist, like, you know, search my heart. Oh, God, whatever in there is toxic, mm-hmm. like get rid of it and lead me in a different way. Like if that's not first our posture, I think uh, our yeah, our flaming arrows are or may maybe a little misplaced. I could not agree with that more. And that's what I when I saw that Saul's tweet, I was like, man, that is good stuff. So hopefully those were both helpful for you. And uh, I would encourage, uh, am I allowed to do this? Give Ian Simpkins a uh, a follow on God. Twitter. It is it is a good follow. So oh boy. I know that embarrasses you so oh much. Man. That's why I love to do it. Coming <laughs> up next, coming up next at lifehacker.com. They wrote this, why you should be kind Instead of nice, we're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, at this uh, website, Lifehacker, which I don't think we've ever been to before, Uh Megan Walbert writes, why you should be kind instead of nice. And I, when I first read this uh, headline, I was like, aren't those the same thing? And I think that's going to be a little bit of the point of how this is different. So why you should be kind instead of nice. Why don't you get us into what uh, Megan Walbert wrote here? I would love to. I think this concept is really important, by the way, just to say it out loud. It starts by saying it has felt particularly over the past year like people aren't being especially nice to each other. These times have been trying and it's hard to muster up enough social grace to wave hello to that neighbor who peppered their lawn with political signs of a figure you disdain. But it might be time to reevaluate the value of niceness anyway, because kindness is much more important and they are not the same thing. So they're that's a classic. Here's the thesis. I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you. And then it references, it says, I came across this tweet last week and someone who has lived on both sides of this country. It amused me. It says, when I described East Coast versus West Coast culture to my friends, I often say East Coast is kind, but not nice. The West Coast is nice, but not kind. And East Coasters immediately get it. And West Coasters get mad, which I think <laughs> is a pretty, that's a pretty intriguing. You mentioned kind of the the power of Twitter, you know, because things have to be so succinct. I think that's interesting. But she goes on to say, but once I was uh, done being amused, having mentally pictured a stereotypical gruffy guy from Philly who would curse at you for shivering when you're out in the cold without a coat, even even as he's giving you the coat off his own back, Jordan's point stuck with me. You can be kind without being nice and you can be nice without being kind. Kindness, as they point out, addresses the need regardless of tone. Obviously, using both kindness and niceness in tandem is ideal. One could hand over one's coat without being rude about it, after all. But if the current state of things has worn us down so that we need to rebuild one skill at a time, start with kindness. I think that's a really important chart. I'll read just a little bit more, and then I'll get your reactions. Think mm-hmm. of kindness as the act of uh, a company's or replaces your words. It's silently helping a struggling mom of three kids unload her groceries into her trunk rather than smiling and saying, you're doing a great job, mama, as you breeze past. It's Mm. bringing a pot of soup to your sick friend rather than sighing sympathetically and saying you hope they feel better soon. You're you're kind if you shovel your neighbor's car out from under a pile of snow, stop to help a stranger change a tire, or pause to give an obviously lost person some directions, even if you're not the type of person to bother saying, bless you, when someone else sneezes. It's That paragraph is so interesting to me because it feels like, a modern day version of something that is right from the pages of scripture that speaks to 
walking by someone who's in need and saying, uh, be well, friend, and not actually taking care of the need uh, in that context, scripturally is saying, don't be that person. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I think what she's what she's getting after here is actually right on. Yeah, the very end of it, it says, you may not want to exchange pleasantries with the neighbor who finally took down the ridiculous political banner. But if the wind blows their garbage cans down the street, it would be kind to drag them back over. Uh, First of all, as somebody who grew up on the East Coast, I grew up in New Jersey, just outside New York City. uh, Absolutely true. Uh, One of the most striking things to me about coming to the Midwest was how seemingly nice people were (laughs) versus Mm. uh, where I grew up. But this picture of kindness is absolutely true. And I got to say, I've never really thought of what makes the difference between the two. In her speaking here, it's kind of like nice is just kind of words. It's what you say to people. And there's nothing there's actually I must said there's nothing wrong with it. It's good to be a nice person. Uh, but her call here is go further than that. Go further than that. And uh, and what's more important is how you treat people, treat them uh, with kindness. So, uh, Ian, besides being convicted about this, how uh, how do we tell if we're being if we're more just the nice person versus the kind person? And how do we make that move towards being a more kind person? Well, I think the examples that she gives are are good ones. Um we're not always going to have opportunities to to do all or any of them, right? You might you may not ever actually come across a mom struggling to load her groceries in the car. Also, the the thing that I find so interesting, and we mentioned this in the early months of the pandemic, how you know when we at least for me when I did venture out to the grocery store, I was amazed but not surprised at like how kind of unkind everyone seemed to be to be honest and it wasn't like it wasn't rude necessarily not quite the example of the guy from philly that she gives but certainly like a you don't look at me i don't look at you no one talks to anybody like it was and a lot of that probably had to do with fear and trying to you know keep distance and so there's a lot there's a lot of factors part of what makes some of this tricky now is that some of the examples of kindness could be potentially encroaching in on someone's kind of comfort space right so if mm-hmm. if you saw a mom struggling and you sort of like came on over like here let me help you with that she might be really uncomfortable with you touching her groceries or being that close to her kids you know what i mean like it feels like a year ago helping someone change a tire that was like a no-brainer yeah if you like pull over like help help somebody out but there's also all these other factors you hear these horror stories where somebody like pulled over to help and then that person you know was attacked or you know there's so I, I I understand I think some of the reasons people maybe don't, but I I think it is really really important. I think ultimately what she's getting at is that be a, being a people of action is is really really important, and niceness should be in tandem with those actions. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially given the year that everyone's had, like if if you can only do one, like do do the actions, and I think that's I think that's um that's a, a challenging word. It's not to say that our words are insignificant, and we've talked about that a lot, especially yes. in places like social media. We're like, well, I served at a soup kitchen, so I can be a total jerk to everybody on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Like that's not, that's not at all the point. It's not like a a one for one. Like, oh, I've earned I've earned the right to be a jerk because I've been kind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I think words and actions matching is is sort of what I'm taking away from this. Yeah, I remember years ago I had a friend. Uh, exactly how you described who was the kindest he he, this person would give you their shirt off their back and give you all the time in the world uh 
but their words can be mean to people. Yeah, <laughs> and you're like, right. okay, let's talk that through. Obviously, the goal is nice and kind. Uh, but her point is that oftentimes we stop it nice and that that's what we shoot for. But that maybe or not, maybe uh, let's make the goal, like you said, actions. And how can we treat people well uh, and help people? So a really interesting article there. Why you should be kind instead of nice. We've got that up on our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about hypocrisy and uh, does hypocrisy of the messenger negate their message. I want to have that talk next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, I want to talk about John Kerry and his private plane, and then we're going to be joined by Dr. Robert Jeffers. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, Ian, I want, I want to talk about a story that I read yesterday. Uh, I saw it first on one of the shows I was watching, and then I, and I was reading the article as well here at Fox News. And it has to do with John Kerry. So John Kerry, uh, he is uh, famously ran for president against George W. Bush, uh, but John Kerry is serving as the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate. So yesterday, uh, it was either yesterday or two days ago, uh, President Biden uh, kind of said, hey, the, the environment, climate change is going to be one of the big things we're going to hone in on. And one of the main people who is going to be at the forefront of that discussion is John Kerry. So U.S. Special Envoy for Climate. Uh, and and here's the discussion that was going on uh, online and in other places. It's this, that John Kerry owns and flies around in a private jet. Uh, and the FAA registry, people have done some digging. It is registered, uh, named previously reported for his wife uh, from their family foundation. And this, um, this jet uh, emits upwards of 40 times as much carbon per passenger as commercial airlines. And uh, and so a lot of people have picked up on this. The New York Times ran an editorial that we look forward to the anti-carbon lectures from a guy who travels the globe on private jets and luxury yachts, all of this kind of stuff. And so I, I wanted to dive in there and have, an, have a conversation about mm, hypocrisy, mixed messages and this and that. And a just go for you. Uh, in this specific situation, do you go, yeah, I'm not going to listen to this guy. If he's, if his, if his actions aren't matching his words, uh, then, then I'm not going to listen to any of his words. So in this specific situation, what are your thoughts on this? Okay. So a couple of things. Mm -hmm. One, hypocrisy, whether it's, you know, blatant, veiled, uh, to any degree, doesn't automatically discredit the legitimacy of what they're saying. Just period. I, I think of other examples. This is a bit of a stretch, but you think of you've asked the question a lot. Pastors who have had massive moral failings. Does that mean everything they've ever preached is a lie? No, of course. Of course, it doesn't mean that. Uh, but I will say I tend to agree with the general kind of tone of the article. Like, uh, yeah, the if you're going to be the if you're going to choose to put yourself in a in a public position to speak against something while also contributing massively to that thing. Uh, I find that problematic, but I would like to add another element to this and I, this will be unpopular. Okay. Um, I wish 
I wish that that scrutiny felt more universal, more ubiquitous. Because I think of guys uh, who comes to mind, like Leonardo DiCaprio. He's he's used a lot of his platforms, a lot of his speeches to to speak out against the same types of things. But we know that he travels a bunch on his own private yacht, you know, and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. again, <laughs> like there is there's that should cause some level of uh, that should give we should give pause to that at the very least. That doesn't mean that whatever they're saying is incorrect or not factual, but I do find the the, the messaging is problematic. It's actually pretty interesting because one of the phrases that I used in our sermon last weekend, speaking about something else entirely, was does our life match our message? And mm-hmm. I think that's always an important question to ask, whether it's the stuff you post online versus the life you actually live, or you're a really well-known celebrity or politician. Either way, do they match? And if they don't, um, yeah, I think there should be some follow-up questions. Yeah, there was uh, also an article from years, a couple years ago, because Al Gore was at the forefront yeah. of this fight. You remember his uh, his documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, uh, and then it came out that Al Gore's carbon footprint of his enormous house down in Tennessee uh, was like one of the worst in the state for carbon emission or whatever else it was, energy use. And people were going, see that uh, that right there. Do you really believe what's going on? And so this, like you said, DiCaprio and others as well. I remember reading a story last year. Leonardo DiCaprio is one of them. But there was a, a summit of some sort, a conference on climate change. Uh, and all of these people with their private jets lined up and uh, personal yachts. So let me ask this question. This is an impossible question. So I'm, I'm acknowledging <laughs> that from the beginning. Perfect. But I'd love for you to climb inside the head of a John Kerry here or of because I think this is helpful when we try to make applications to our own lives. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Gore. How do you think that that it's a I don't see that connection, my message versus how I'm actually living or people won't find out it's it. I, I don't care. What do you think? Again, I, I asking you to get in their heads. But in general, what do you think goes on in that situation? Because it seems pretty cut and dry. Hey, if you've got a message like this, but you're living in a different way, that's going to cut the legs out. So what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I, I don't think it's any of what you just mentioned. I don't think it's uh, not recognizing any connection. It, I also don't think that it's that they just don't care or that they think people won't find out. I, I think it's the least. Of, it's certainly not. They'll, they'll not find out. I think everybody, everyone in the public sphere knows like, yeah, any of this is is going to be found out. I think like with anything, our capacity to self-rationalize is endless. You know, so you could argue or he might argue my my time is so valuable mm. or the message I bring has such gravity that it would actually be a greater detriment if I had to wait in lines or you know work through the the, the public system. My ability to be the places that I need to be swiftly and on my own schedule and on my own dime outweighs whatever negative impacts it might have on the environment. I could see that being the kind of rationalization. I've heard pastors you know, with yep. their own jets, make the same types of claims. They're, I mean, they're not all going full Kenneth Copeland saying like planes are tubes of demons and I can't be. <laughs> they're not all going that route. They're saying like, oh, no, it's uh, the message I bring is so valuable that it's, it necessitates me having this private jet. I, of course, maybe not, of course, I'll just say it out loud. I disagree. <laughs> uh, but I could I could see that maybe being his rationalization. 
Yeah. So one thing we try to do here is like, you know, an easy thing to do on talk radio is to just point fingers. See that hypocrite, that this. But you do like to cause these things to make you look in the mirror. And so you reference that you preached even a message recently kind of along these lines. Uh, what is the burden that we as pastors should feel or as just Christ followers? What's the effect when our lives don't do a good job of 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 um, our lives don't reflect our message. What's the burden we should feel? And is there any grace that we should feel also that we're not going to always get it right? Yeah, obviously there, there, there needs to be grace for, you know, when we stumble, when we fall, that is different though, I think to intentional perpetual mm-hmm. systemic manipulation for sure. Like, Oh, Hey, grace, right? You're like, well, yeah, you're, you're intentionally setting out to dupe people. <laughs> in the name of Jesus, that's problematic. One of the things I said on Sunday, actually, that I don't know if you ever have this where you preach something and like as you're preaching, it's like convicting you, you know, Absolutely. Like that's, yes. that's always a surreal moment. But part of what I said was, I think in my experience, people are asking if they can trust you well before they're asking if they can trust Jesus. I think we it's easy in sort of like evangelistic efforts for us to like trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus, the Bible and Jesus, which is all really, really, really important. But in terms of like how we interact with the world. I think in my very limited experience, people are far more often and far earlier asking, can I actually trust you, though, as a person? And if Mm. our life doesn't match our message, I I think for a lot of people that can be a real roadblock. We're like, all right, well, you're you seem super inconsistent. So how can I actually trust what you're saying about a man who rose from the dead? I think those I think those are important things to consider. Absolutely. That's well put. Uh, and this is a, you know, again, it becomes easy to point fingers oh, at those politicians, at those celebrities, but to also look in the mirror, I think is an important yeah. thing. And to ask what kind of effect am I having on the message that I'm putting out there? So uh, an important conversation for all of us. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by Dr. Robert Jeffress, uh, the author of a new devotional called A Place Called Heaven. Dr. Jeffress is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined on the phone by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Uh, Dr. Robert Jeffress is a teammate of ours here on AM 1160. You can hear him on Pathway to Victory weekdays at 8.30 a.m. right here on AM 1160. And also, uh, Dr. Jeffress is coming on to talk about his brand new devotional, A Place Called Heaven. Uh, And before we dive into that, know that there's a special offer going on right now where if you make a gift to the ministry, you could go to ptv.org and you'll receive this brand new devotional for free. So, Dr. Jeffers, thanks so much. Uh, we're glad to have you on The Common Good. Oh, it's great to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your new devotional, A Place Called Heaven. Uh, with this new book, the goal, it seems to be to help readers focus their eyes on heaven each day. And I'd love to just start by asking, why did you decide to write this book in the first place? Well, a couple of uh, years ago, my original book, A Place Called Heaven, came out. It was instantly a bestseller because people were interested in heaven. And around that time, the publisher said, you know, uh, maybe we ought to do a devotional uh, for people to spend four minutes a day for 100 days focusing on heaven. We planned that two years ago. Little did we know that the week the book came out last week, we would be in the middle of a global pandemic, <laughs> a political right. civil war in our country. We need the hope of heaven right now more than ever. 
And you know what this book does is it just challenges people to think about the future God has planned for you and start preparing it for you now. And, and the truth is, focusing on heaven, as Colossians 3 tells us to do, set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. That doesn't erase our problems, but it does put our problems in perspective. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, these momentary light afflictions we suffer now are nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. And we all need that perspective every day. You know, I'm thinking of that Fairly famous C.S. Lewis quote where he says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in, aim at earth and you get neither. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious from your perspective as a, as a pastor, like why do you think so few Christians actually spend time thinking or pondering heaven at all? Well, I think uh, they have uh, bought into this myth of people who are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Right, You've right. that charge before. I've never met anybody like that. Uh, you know, Lewis went on to say in that quote you alluded to, he said, the problem is not that we think about heaven too much. It's that we think about it too little. Mm-hmm. And he said, history has shown that those Christians who are most effective in this life are precisely those who thought most about the next life. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. When we think about heaven, it prepares us uh, to live right now effectively. I mean, just imagine that your employer told you that in six months you were going to be transferred to a foreign country and it was going to be a permanent move. I imagine you'd start getting ready for it. You'd find out everything you could about that country. You'd want to make sure you had the right currency. Uh, you understood the culture. And of course, you'd want to be sure you had a proper passport to get into the country. Uh, I think the fact is we're all going to make that journey, that permanent relocation. We need to be preparing now for it. Yeah, and, and that's a great jumping off point here, Dr. Jeffers. Uh, practically speaking, how do we do that? How do people out there, as they're hearing this, uh, what's it look like to prepare your life now for a life in heaven? Well, like I said, it starts with having the right passport. Uh, the only way we get into this new country called heaven is not with a passport stamped Catholic, Baptist, Jew. The only passport that's accepted is one stamped forgiven by Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I think, you know, secondly, we've got to make sure we have the right currency to get into heaven. You know, right now we can start exchanging our earthly dollars, which are absolutely going to be worthless one day, for heavenly dollars. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about how we spend our time and the opportunities. You know, one of the great ironies is, as brief as this life is, how we spend these brief few years determines the kind of heaven we experience. What we do on earth reverberates in the halls of heaven forever. And uh, and then I also talk about in the book, minimizing pre-departure regrets. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, being at the airport, getting ready to board a flight and remembering you forgot to pack a belt or you didn't bring the right shoes or you left your purse at home or whatever it is. You don't want those kind of regrets. As a pastor, I have seen too many Christians who are on the verge of departing this life. They know they're going to die, and they have lots of regrets over uh, unreconciled family relationships, experiences they wish they would have taken advantage of. You want to minimize those pre-departure regrets. One of the things that Brian and I have found as pastors is that this last year in the midst of a pandemic, it does feel like there there has been an increase of consideration about what comes next and afterlife and loss and all that. How, how have you been encouraging people 
who have maybe either suffered a loss or or they feel like their faith has just been rocked this last year, as many people have probably experienced the same. What, what have been some of the ways that you've encouraged people? Well, one way I've encouraged people is to certainly make sure their own relationship is intact. I mean, look, this pandemic has caused all of us with any sense to come to terms with our mortality. We are right. going to die. I mean, a few months ago, my wife said, we need to go get our cemetery plots in order. And so we went to the cemetery and wow. bought our plots. That is a sobering experience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. Well, the fact is, most of us aren't going to die from the pandemic, but we are going to die for something. So we want to be sure that we're right with God. But then I, secondly, I think we've got to get out of ourselves if we're Christians and realize there's never been a better opportunity to share the hope of Christ with people than right now. And, you know, I would encourage people to think about this little gift book, A Place Called Heaven Devotional that we're talking about. It's a great tool to give a non-Christian. Everybody's interested in heaven. Nobody's offended by the idea of heaven. And these devotionals will be good for non-Christians as well, not only to talk about heaven, but to find the way there through faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is use this as a ministry opportunity and not just think about how you're feeling. Yeah, uh, and as we kind of point people towards the devotional, we would love for people to go pick up uh, a place called Heaven, the devotional, also the book. How is the devotional set up? I would love for people just to know if they were to take the time to pick this up. Uh, are there questions for them to answer? Yeah. Are there are passages to read? Well, give us a little picture of what they'll be uh, what they'll be getting with the devotional. Uh, every devotional is about a page and a half in length. It talks about one of the. 10 most frequently asked questions in heaven. Uh, who's going to be there? Do we know one another? Do we know what's happening on earth? But then there's a scripture verse and a couple of reflective questions. You can read each devotional in about five minutes. And I just challenge people, there are a hundred of these four to five minute devotionals in there. Just imagine if you spent the next hundred days reflecting on heaven, I guarantee you it wouldn't just affect your future. It would affect how you live your life right now. Absolutely. So uh, here's what we'd love for you to do. Go to ptv.org uh, and there you could pick up Dr. Jeffers brand new devotional, A Place Called Heaven. Uh, that's ptv.org. Also, be reminded that you can hear Dr. Robert Jeffers on Pathway to Victory weekdays at 830 a.m. right here on AM 1160. Again, that's Pathway to Victory weekdays at 830 a.m. here on AM 1160. Uh, Dr. Jeffers, it's always our pleasure to have you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, you are listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. Here in just a second, I'm going to dive us back into the Twitter sphere, and I want to do something we haven't really done in a while. Just take one person's Twitter page and go through a bunch of tweets. This person in particular, uh, Dr. Tim Keller, uh, who's been very active on Twitter as of late. Uh, and uh, you've probably listened to the show enough to know that Ian and I have a high view of uh, Tim Keller. And so I want to just go through some of the things he said. But before we get into Tim Keller's wisdom, I would like to get into the holidays of the day. And so, Ian, you did tell me that there's some strange ones today. So uh, so I am ready. What are the holidays today? Well, let me let me give a nod to the legitimate ones first, because I think that's I think that's actually kind of interesting. So mm -hmm. it is Jose Marti's birthday memorial in Cuba. Uh, okay. It is Army Day in Armenia. It's didn't know this was a thing. European Privacy Day. That sounds <laughs> delightful. 
Does, is that even really in a pandemic? Is that even anything anyone's celebrating? Like, it's been no. a year of privacy. Well, I guess physical privacy, maybe not so much digital. I have so many questions. Okay. <laughs> here, but here are the, here are the fun ones. You ready? I am more than ready. It is fun at work day. Nice. <laughs> are you currently having fun at work? I am. It's been a good day. So yes, oh. yes. It's also national have fun at work day. Those are both listed there. Someone needs to clean up this page. It is national kazoo day. Love to know Brian Fromm's hot take on kazoos. I am pro kazoo, but I have not learned to play it. So yes. What do you mean? Hold on. <laughs> what do you mean to learn to play it? What is, what is there to learn? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Try it. It's, it's just humming. Is, is there a, is there a, a level here that I'm not understanding? No, it's it's. I Are we going to learn that you like can't? You don't know how to hum. Is that what, can, is that what you're saying? I can. You want me to just hum for the next seven minutes here? We can, you can uh, see how it goes. <laughs> I mean, I don't need seven minutes of it, but I, I would like some proof though. That would be helpful. Mm-hmm. See, good so far. What tune were you just? What were you just humming? What was that? Inspirational music. I can help you. Here we go. Ready? How about I? How about I hum uh, "Amazing Grace"? How's that sound? Ready? No, I, I think we've had enough. I don't know that we. No, it's. If, if, if you want to do that underneath my reading of the rest of the holidays, that would be nice. Nope, I'm okay. good. That's good. Uh, are you going to do uh, Chris Tomlin's "My Chains Are Gone"? Are you, gonna, <laughs> no, are you including I'm that going or old no? school? Like you've declared <laughs> yourself old school. I'm going old school uh, with my hands. I got you. I got you. <laughs> All right. So it is also National Blueberry Pancake Day. Brian, please don't break my heart. Where Where do you land on blueberry pancakes? Uh, very pro blueberry. Oh, pancakes. all is reconciled. Yes, Thank very you, good pro. Lord. Uh, I don't know that we could have recovered from that one. <laughs> that was going to be the breaking point. <laughs> yeah. If you had like this, like really adamant, like fruit doesn't belong in pancakes riff oh. or something like that would be, that'd be heartbreaking. Oh. It is also data privacy day. So it's funny that I was joking a little bit earlier. I should read all of these beforehand. <laughs> but it's European privacy day, but it is also data privacy day. I wonder, I wonder if there's a, a correlation of some kind, but either way, those are the holidays, and I hope you celebrate accordingly. I do enjoy that part. By the way, I love blueberry pancakes, but we might break here. I hate chocolate chip pancakes. Chocolate and pancakes is not my friend. You're going to have to do the rest of the show alone. I can't. <laughs> no, no. I like blueberry pancakes, so just hold on to that one. Hold on to that one. You should have stopped while we were ahead. Now, you, now it's in my now it's burned in my subconscious. I can't I can't unhear that. That's true. My bad. My bad. All right. So what I told you we're going to do, <laughs> Tim Keller. So he formerly a pastor in New York City he is retired, but he is prolific author. Uh, I went to Exponential. One of the first years I went to Exponential Church Planted Conference, Tim Keller was kind of the main speaker uh, and they referred to him as Yoda. So that's kind of how he is seen in the evangelical <laughs> world, like full of wisdom. Uh, Tim, Ke- And then I loved it. He spoke, you know, usually people get behind the podium and they're just going crazy, walking around. Lots of energy. Tim Keller sat on a stool and right, was mesmerizing for like a half hour. <laughs> and right. he just sat on a stool. Yep. Uh, so that is Tim Keller. So I, uh, he has been pretty active on Twitter as of late, especially since his retirement. Uh, people, for some reason, are taking lots of shots at him, trying to call him a woke liberal, which is uh, not who Tim Keller is. But, uh, but when he says stuff, uh, a lot of people do listen. So let me read a couple of his tweets, Ian. I just want to go. I'm going to read it. 
you react to it. Agree, okay. disagree. What do you think of it? He wrote sure. on January the 27th, you cannot help with a burden unless you come close to burdened people. What do you think of that tweet? Uh, okay. I tend to agree. Okay. I don't know in an axiomatic sense that that's always true. Um, let me think why I think that. I think there's a lot of cases. So people probably know to some degree I ha- I have and I think always have had like a bit of what some might call like a social justice bent. And I don't mm-hmm. know what to credit that to or if that's, you know, is that nature, nurture, who knows? Um, and I, I, I probably have said things similar to this. Like you, you can't, you can't just care about injustice theoretically or from an ivory tower. Like it involves yep. usually some dirt on your nails. It involves like seeing real tears. I think that's part of it. I will say, however, though, and I've, I've, I've learned a lot in the last few years about, um, sometimes this, the seemingly invisible generosity of other people who, for whatever reason, maybe they're not able to and i mean and i mean actually able not not just in terms of like ah my schedule's packed i'm not able to but like people who like legitimately have real barriers to like what he's saying the the drawing near to other burdens but are able to because of their generosity make like real significant Im- impact and in some ways far greater than than i'll ever be able to make you know like if someone so yeah if someone learns about a need in some obscure village in Africa for a hospital and they just happen to have the capacity to write a check for that hospital. I think that's most certainly to use his words, helping with a burden without necessarily drawing near or coming close to those burdened people. But I also think not to keep ping ponging, I think probably coming close to burden people in other capacities is part of what softens your heart to, to, to help lift that, that burden in general. And I think, so I think, yeah, he's mostly right. Okay, Uh, this one is going to I think people are going to have to chew on this one. So I'm going to give you two minutes here. Uh, Oh, it's be like a game show. Two minutes on the clock for killer tweets. Here we go. Uh, (laughs) On January 23rd, he wrote this. Apathy is a bigger problem than atheism for Christianity. Apathy is a bigger problem than atheism for Christianity. What do you think about what Dr. Keller wrote there? Okay, so I actually... What that draws to mind for me, at least, is um, that passage in in Revelation where he's talking about lukewarm Christians. Mm -hmm. And the terminology is pretty intense, actually, where it feels like it feels like and this isn't I'm not this is not good exegesis, but it feels like at first blush, God is saying, I'd actually rather you be ice cold like I hot or cold. Choose a lane. It's this lukewarm. What's the language? I want to spit you out of my mouth. Yep. 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 It's like it has like a like almost like a vomitous type of tone to it. Like this middle of the lane, like that's, that's worse than ice cold. Um, Which I think is really interesting, especially in light of a bunch of other things we talked about on the show where, you know, we've referenced a couple of passages from screw tape letters where this veteran demon is training this novice demon. And the whole kind of premise is like, keep them in this like weird squishy middle space. Like that's where you're going to really win the battle. Keep them distracted, keep them apathetic, keep them lethargic. So C.S. Lewis tends to, it seems like, really agree with that same kind of principle. Like, yeah, that kind of laissez-faire, that is actually really toxic. And part of the reason I think it's so dangerous is because it seems so 
undangerous. You know what I mean? Like yes. it's, it's toxicity is in its veiledness. And I think that's part of what he's getting at. That's well put. I think for the atheism, you know where people stand and you can have a discussion and, and sure. talk about it. Uh, apathy, man, just going, I'm fine. Everything's good. Like, yeah, that passage in Revelation is uh, is is a convicting one at the very least. And it's it's scary. And so uh, anyway, close with this one. You don't need to explain this one. I know you well enough to know that you're going to uh, feel good about what Keller wrote on January 24th. A church should not simply have a missions department. It should wholly exist to be a mission. We're going to leave that one with you from Dr. Keller. And uh, I would encourage people to follow Tim Keller on Twitter at Tim Keller NYC. A lot of great stuff there. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show from Relevant Magazine, which wrote this 2021 challenge. Throw out bad theology. Going to end the show talking about that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. It's been an enjoyable show today. Uh, Ian, as we close out the show, we tend to do it with a challenge, with an encouragement, uh, yesterday with some good news. Uh, and, and with that in mind, I found this article over at Relevant Magazine, uh, written by Dana uh, Drozdick, written this uh, 2021 challenge. So the 2021 challenge, throw out bad theology. I thought that that headline got me. It got me. So why don't you jump us into this article? I'd love to see what the bad theology is that they're talking about. <laughs> well, and I'm sure that uh, like how they define bad theology, that plenty of people will disagree with, which is part of the, oh, hi, hi, Pippa. Uh, not my dog. <laughs> isn't it always the last segment, last segment of every day? There's a dog barking. Uh, so, yeah, my my guess is plenty of people will disagree on their conclusion of what bad theology is, because I don't think anyone right willingly like holds on to what they know to be bad theology. Like That's not like anyone's jam. Like, yeah, I know it's terrible. I just like it. So let me let me read how they begin. So halfway through 2020, I found myself laying on my bedroom floor, staring at the ceiling and wondering when the pain was going to stop. I was wondering whether my dad would receive a heart transplant in time before his heart failed forever, whether my mother's surgery would have any complications, whether I'd ever get to see my friends again and whether I'd be stuck in quarantine for the rest of my life. And I was told your 20s were supposed to be the best time of your life. <laughs> staring at the ceiling, letting the pain sink into my bones, I couldn't help but look up at the ceiling and all but scream, but I'm a good person and pout about the way my 23rd year of life turned out. I was taught growing up that things happen for a reason. There it is. I was taught that if we just have enough faith, God will provide. But looking around me, neither of those statements seem to be true. In 2020, frontline workers put their lives at risk to serve a population of which nearly one third failed to wear a mask on a regular or consistent basis. 11% of individuals lost their jobs due to budget cuts and lack of funding. Black individuals such as Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were unjustly murdered while their killers were let go unpunished. And I was taught to believe everything happens for a reason. 2020 took my faith and shook it like a snow globe toppling all of the so-called truths I clung to, those warm, fuzzy placations I told myself that made me feel safe and secure. But with my world falling apart, the theology I previously clung to no longer worked, leaving me entering 2021 with a perturbed heart and a faith in need of rebuilding. This actually has become a bit of a theme for us the last couple of days, hasn't it? This, yep, it really this has. sense that our faith has been shaken. And I would say for 
legitimate reasons, you know, and I, mm-hmm. and I would, I, I would caution anyone who wants to, to dismiss her like, ah, she's only 23. What does she know? Right. Like right. how, who is she to decide what is or isn't good theology? I think that's understandable. Um, but there is something very relatable right now to that experience, to looking at the last year thinking, well, I was always told this, but what seems to be playing out in real time, I would also add though, it feels like, you know, our brothers and sisters on the other side of the globe, mm-hmm. this has been the kind of thing that they've probably had to, to deal with and reconcile and grapple with for a long time. So for us to be like, oh, now that now I'm like faced with this suffering, like, yeah, that's that should be a good indication that like by and large, a lot of us have not experienced the kind of suffering that people across the globe have, you know, for generations. So I think it's a really interesting premise, though, and one that I, I find a lot of people can resonate with. Are you finding the same kind of sentiment in your own church? Uh, yeah. And whether in my own church or just seeing it around me, there, I think a lot of us live with a subconscious or conscious theology that says, if I just have enough faith, if I just follow the rules enough, if I just this or that, uh, then God's going to take care of me. Then I won't have these problems. And and I think that's the theology she's wrestling with here going, I was told if I just had enough faith, things would go okay. And now things aren't going okay. And and what do I do with this? And she goes on to say, as 2021 gives us the opportunity to turn a figurative leaf, I have only one resolution for the year, and that's to let go of bad theology. I'm part of a generation fracturing from the church. It's not because the church isn't hip enough or edgy. It's because American Christianity has veered away from true biblical principles of love and community and towards a more exclusivist tradition of dualistic thinking kind of goes on to say this black and white mentality uh, is why toxic beliefs such as the prosperity gospel paradigm are so deeply rooted in the evangelical church today. Good things it is here. It goes again. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And that type of thinking is fine when everything is going well. And so again, Ian, I would say, uh, wouldn't you agree that that I don't think a lot of us would get up behind a pulpit or uh, say to somebody else, hey, if you're good enough, good things will happen to you. If you're bad enough, bad things are going to happen to you, that the world works that way. I don't think a lot of us would say that and even say that we believe that. But don't you think it is probably true that especially as Christians, a lot of us, that is our theology. We do live that way. And then when years like 2020 happen, it it, it can't hold up to the weight of the bad things going on around us. I think it's part of the reason why you see so few sermon series on Ecclesiastes. Cause like mm. <laughs> the premise of Ecclesiastes seems to be, if I could like write a, a subheading for Ecclesiastes, it'd be like a book for everyone who played by the rules and still got screwed. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's, <laughs> that seems to sort of be the, the posture, you know, like, no, we want, we want proverbs, which by the way, proverbs are proverbs. They're not promises. It's not like, Hey, if you do this thing, your kid is guaranteed to always hold the faith or your marriage will always look like this. I think we tend to approach scripture that way. I will say part of what I love about being a, a student of the Bible is that it it doesn't fit into any kind of nice, neat category. It's not even a book. It's a, it's a collection of books written over this massive span of thousands of years on all these different continents by all these different authors. And it's all these different genres and we do have to reconcile at the very least grapple with passages that feel a little karmatic, like, Hey, you reap what you sow. Mm -hmm. Well, shoot, reap what you sow to some years feels like the Christian version of what 
comes around goes around, right? Like, well, you plant good seed, you get good crop, right? Like how you you can almost understand why people would come to that very black and white conclusion. Well, that sounds like good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. I think part of what she's getting at here, and I appreciate the way she put it, she's like, young people are are really wrestling with their relationship with the church, not because it's not hip enough at all. Churches that are trying super hard to be, quote, hip enough to attract youngins, I think are missing the point. Like it's this sort of like dualistic black and white like this and nothing else. like there's a, a real sometimes a dismissal of the gray or the grid or the like, uh, like I, I just find it. I don't know if you're the same way, Brian, whenever I hear a, a preacher even say, yeah, this text is is messy. This is complicated. And we might not actually get this right today. I'm like, oh, now I want to lean in. Like that's that to me is so valuable, but it's also pretty rare. Absolutely. And especially when we those of us who preach, you're like, I have to have it all wrapped up, right? I need right. my three points and and, right. and a story to end it. And and I but I do think people are looking for, hey, I look around in 2020, now 2021, and go, man, this doesn't always make sense with how I've thought of God and how I've thought of the church and myself. And let me just end by how she ends. She says, in these chaotic times, the church has an opportunity here. Throughout all of this grief, chaos, and sadness, we can offer comfort to our neighbors, providing a faith of solidarity, justice, and truth, rather than false platitudes and harsh judgments. We have the chance to embrace the change rather than shirk from it. That's Mm -hmm. why my resolution is simple yet complex, to throw out bad theology. Bad things happen. And that's why we have the church. So I thought that was a a, a well-written, important way to end here. We'll put that up at our Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram pages at Common Good Talk. Well, if you missed any of the show, you can find it those places. Also, 1160hope.com and also wherever it is you find your podcast. That is not my dog. I think you are messing with me. Can you, Brian, please. I know that we joke about this all the time, but can you please? She seems... Hungry or angry? I don't know. I don't have a dog, so I'm not, I'm not sure what that bark means. You're a mean, mean person, my friend. <laughs> We're glad to you. Join us tomorrow on Friday from 4 until 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and that's my dog, Pippa, maybe. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.